You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. That is really setting ourselves up for failure, this idea of waiting until the future. What we should be asking is how can we make sure that we're maximizing the enjoyment that we have of our lives right now and for the rest of our lives? So it's balancing enjoying life now and making sure that we're doing what we need to financially in order to have the future that we want to have as well. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner Edelman Financial Engines can tailor investment solutions for the wealth you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planEFE.com slash her money. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you have been listening really for any time at all, you know I believe personal finance is about so much more than just the numbers. When we talk about paying off debt or saving for a house or setting up college funds for our kids, we're really talking about emotions. We're talking about safety and security and hopes and dreams. There is a reason that people say financial advisors are like therapists. They are privy to our deepest fears and our greatest joys. And There are also actual financial therapists out there whose entire job is to help people unpack their emotions around money. The biggest emotion that we associate with money, it's stress. 69% of adults say that the economy is a significant source of stress. And that stress, that anxiety, falls disproportionately on the shoulders of women, younger adults, and people of color. And while you might think that the first step in losing those fears about money, reducing that stress, is hitting some sort of a magic number, it really starts with understanding your wants and your fears. And my guest today is going to help us do just that. Scarlett Cochran is a lawyer, an entrepreneur, a Marine Corps veteran. She spent years working as a public interest banking and finance attorney at government agencies, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the FDIC, a lot of news about the FDIC lately, and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. She and her husband are also the creators of One Big Happy Life, a YouTube channel that has helped millions of viewers learn how to manage their money without stress, shame, or guilt. And she's got a new book. We're excited about that. It's called It's Not About the Money, A Proven Path to Building Wealth and Living the Rich Life You Deserve. Hey, Scarlett. Nice to see you. Hi, Jean. So excited to be here. Oh, well, I'm glad about that. Tell me a little bit more about you and your story. I mean, I know you were a teen mom. You were living below the poverty line while you were raising your first child. How'd you get from there to being a kick-ass lawyer and personal finance expert? 
Well, when I became pregnant with my daughter, Alexis, I was actually working full time as an active duty Marine. And when I became pregnant with her, I was making $14,000. I was enlisted. I enlisted in the Marine Corps fresh out of high school. And my goal was to get money for college and see the world and, yes, move out of my parents' house because, look, I was an 18-year-old girl, right? (laughs) I was ready. And so I was working full time. And even when I moved out of the barracks, because you can do that once you have a family. And I started getting the housing allowance. I was making only $24,000 a year, which is technically under the poverty line for a family of two. And I quickly realized that the job that I was working wasn't paying enough to support the lifestyle that I wanted to have for myself. And it didn't support the big dreams and vision that I had for my daughter's life either. I wanted to be able to pay for college for her. I wanted to be able to buy her first car compared to my own story where I found myself pregnant with my daughter and didn't even have a driver's license. And I had to figure out how to buy my own car, even while only making $14,000 a year. And one of the great gifts that my parents gave me in some ways it was limiting, but in many ways a gift, was this idea that I needed to become a doctor or lawyer because that's like the typical immigrant parent narrative. My parents and I came here when I was two years old from Guyana, South America. And so my parents always said doctor or lawyer, and they were okay with the Marine Corps thing as long as I went on to be a doctor or a lawyer. (laughs) And so I did end up deciding to go to law school. So I started to take classes part-time online while I was still working full-time as an active duty Marine. And then at the end of my tour of duty, I went on to call College. I also worked between 20 and 40 hours a week in order to... And you own, had a young child. And had a young child because back then the GI Bill didn't cover everything. So there's a new type of GI Bill now that does cover substantially more. But my GI Bill, which was before it was like the Vietnam era, <laughs> GI Bill didn't cover quite as much. So I needed to work to support the household. And then I Googled how to get into law school and here we are. (laughs) And Legally Blonde popped up and you made a video and you got into law school. Before we flash back into law school, how did your military service, and by the way, thank you for serving, how did it shape your views on money and the economy? Honestly, I didn't really think about money that much back then. For me, the military was the first time that I was really getting a steady paycheck. It was my first full-time job. But the way it's set up when you're enlisted, you move into the barracks so your housing is taken care of. It's very much almost like college life, but way more strict. (laughs) And so for me, it really did give me some structure. So at least if I was squandering all my money, I could still go to the chow hall and eat food and I would still have housing. So that really helped me, but in some ways kind of hurt me because I didn't have to be responsible with my money. I truly could and often did spend all of my money well before my next paycheck and would just have to sit around the barracks and wait for the money to drop into my account again so that I could go shopping. It wasn't until I became pregnant with my daughter that I realized that, hey, that isn't going to cut it anymore because now I have rent to pay. I have a car payment and I have a mouth to feed. So I couldn't just go to the chow hall anymore either. It was my responsibility to cook. So it was only after having a child and truly having to bear all of the expenses of running a household did I really start to pay attention to where my money was going and start building better financial habits. 
Yeah, I get that. I think that's a very familiar story, especially for college kids, right, whose parents are footing the bill for so many things. If you've got money that you earned over the summer or you've got money that you're earning from a part-time job, you don't necessarily have to be responsible with it. A baby is a big, big wake-up call. You went to law school, became a lawyer. Why a banking and finance lawyer? I wish I could say that I did it on purpose, that I knew that I was going to law school specifically to do that. Even though now looking back on it, clearly that's where my interests were. So first of all, long before I even went to college, I started looking into how to buy a house. And this was right before I had my daughter. So here I am, 19 years old, single teen mom, making now close to 24K a year and telling everyone, "Okay, I want to buy a house. And everyone's like, no, you can't. That's not possible for you. Like, not only are you 19, you're a single woman Also, you're a single teen mom and you're lower level enlisted because I was an E3 at the time. People like you don't do those types of things was the message that I got. And thankfully, I am alive in the time of Google where Google was a useful resource for me. And I Googled how to buy a house. And that's how I started to get interested in money and understanding money and empowering myself. Because with that knowledge, then I could figure out how to make money work best for me. And that's when I figured out that absolutely I could buy a house. I just had to figure out where can I afford a house where I could qualify for a mortgage making $24,000 a year. And that mortgage was $105,000. And I ended up buying a house for $97,000. It was a townhouse. It was a 40-minute commute to work. But I owned a piece of property. And I bought that house just before my 20th birthday, a few months after having my daughter. So that's when I became interested in money and numbers. And so even in undergrad, when I worked part time, I worked for the Office of Veterans Affairs, where I calculated VA benefits. And then I went to law school and I worked in the mortgage foreclosure litigation clinic. That seemed very interesting to me, having owned property, having experienced the decline in value of property during the 2008 financial crisis, because I sold my house in 2006. So the bubble had already started to burst. And so I just followed my interest and my curiosity. So when I saw a job at HUD regulating fair lending and fair housing, That seemed fascinating to me. And I went to HUD and their fair lending cases were their most complex and novel cases. And so I got all of them in my office and I just took it and run with it and I loved it. And so then I just kept going. We are coming through a period of financial turmoil, bank failures that we have not seen in a decade, more than a decade since the financial crisis. What did you learn in your time working at the FDIC, working at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that you think everybody should know or our listeners should know about their money based on how these financial systems work? So I would say the main thing that I learned is that it's important for you to understand the financial transactions that you're getting into and that you empower yourself to ask all the questions that you need to ask so that you feel comfortable with the benefits, but also the risks, the trade-offs, and understanding, too, that Ups and downs, ebbs and flows in the economy, they are just natural. They're a natural cycle. We've all gone through multiple 
ups and downs, really, if you're an adult, you've already weathered ups and downs in the economy. And it's a normal part of our financial lives. And we can still thrive in spite of that. So that's really the main thing. A lot of the work that the CFPB in particular does is aimed at protecting people from bad financial actors. Do you think that individuals understand the risks? Do you think individuals understand the financial products that we are buying and selling every day? I would say largely no. I think that people really do have this sense of innocence when it comes to the financial transactions and a sense of pure, fair dealing from the perspective of the bank is going to look out for you in the transaction, right? They are both looking out for their own self-interest and your self-interest. And so they wouldn't let you do something that they didn't think was in your best interest. But in reality, the bank is actually trusting people to know what's in their best interest. The bank is looking at the risk, right? And they know the risk of default, right? They factor that into all of their lending. They expect a certain percentage of their portfolio to go bad, not because they're necessarily predatory lenders, right? They're not bad actors, but that's just life because things happen. People unfortunately pass early. People lose their jobs. People get sick. So they accept that as the reality of lending. But what they don't do is trust that people are paying attention to, okay, this is how much I need to be investing. My kids need to go to college, so I need to have this much extra in my budget. And so I probably shouldn't get a $700,000 mortgage, I should probably get a $500,000 mortgage, even though my income qualifies for it. The bank's not doing that for you. And that's also okay. It's our responsibility to do that for ourselves. And so I think that's where the disconnect comes in, that people also are so, they feel a lot of, like you mentioned, anxiety and fear and stress around money. And so they look away when what they really need to be doing is looking deeper so that they can feel empowered and confident about the decisions they are making. I have been doing this for 35 years, Scarlett. That story has not changed at all. It's incredibly frustrating, but it's also incredibly true. Let's talk about your book. Your book is called It's Not About the Money. And I've heard you say that you want to help people set goals based on their vision of what a rich life looks like, which I'm all for. I think money is a tool. We got to use it to get what we want. And I'm not going to judge what you want. And please don't judge what I want. We'll just play it that way. But I do have to ask, if it's not about the money, what is it about? It's really about creating that fulfilling life, creating a life that looks and feels the way that you want it to, and creating a life that you look back on and you're excited about the life that you created. You are satisfied and fulfilled and you're thrilled with the memories that you make. And so often I see people making financial decisions where they're constantly deferring their life and thinking that there's going to be some magical time when they have all the financial resources they want to have and they never have to think about money again. And 
There may be someone that reaches that point when they're very young, but for most people, that's not the case. Even when you have a whole bunch of money, you still pay attention to where it goes. So that is really setting ourselves up for failure, this idea of waiting until the future. What we should be asking is how can we make sure that we're maximizing the enjoyment that we have of our lives right now and for the rest of our lives? So it's balancing enjoying life now and making sure that we're doing what we need to financially in order to have the future that we want to have as well. Well, and clearly that is something that you recognized when you were 20 years old. I mean, I am struck by the fact that you bought a house at age 20 when you were making $24,000 a year. But I'm also, I heard you, you made sacrifices in order to buy that house. You decided, okay, I'm not going to be able to buy a house 10 minutes from where I work because those houses are too expensive. I'm going to have to move 40 minutes away. And I'm going to do that because buying a house is at the top of my priority list. So I get what you're saying. I think sometimes people put up roadblocks for themselves when they're not willing to make compromises. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I was going to say, because I know people don't like sacrifice. They don't like deprivation. And so that's why I say the words that we use matter. So it's not a sacrifice. It is a conscious trade-off. I'm doing it on purpose. I've made a decision about what my priorities are. And part of what stops people is they won't choose priorities. They won't say that, hey, this is my number one, this is my number two, and this is my number three. Instead, they actually do this thing where they almost do things begrudgingly. Whether they do or they don't, no matter what decision they make, they then feel bad about it. And so it's important that when you make your decision, okay, if your decision is you want to have your lattes, then enjoy your lattes, but don't be mad at yourself for having lattes at the end of the month. That just sours the whole experience. Or enjoy your lattes and just understand those lattes, when you added them all up, that was a five-card class to soul cycle. So you made a choice, right? You made a choice. And that's a fine choice to make. You just have to make it consciously. I know in your book, you write about a lot of myths about money that end up holding people back from building wealth. And oftentimes these are rooted in our own fears. They're rooted in our own insecurities. I want to dig into some of those myths. But before we do that, just a reminder that this program is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. And our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you are building and growing and protecting. Their investment management approach, it's based on Nobel Prize winning research and their planners do not sell products to earn commissions, period. So no matter where you're going next, it's a good idea to see how they can help you get there. Just visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule an appointment with a financial advisor today. I'm talking with Scarlett Cochran, author of It Is Not About the Money. So money myths. What are they and what are the biggies actually and how do they hold us back? Oh my gosh, so many. But I have to say the number one myth is that you can't build wealth if you have debt. And what's attached to that too is that you can't start investing until you pay off all of your debt. 
So put debt into context for me, because we've talked a lot on this show about the difference between good debt and bad debt and student loan debt and credit card debt. Let's talk about specific kinds of debt. So I actually do not classify any debt as bad debt because I want to empower people to always make those conscious trade-offs, right? So if we're going to say that a debt is bad, it's only debt that you take on without understanding the impact that it's going to have on your finances. So I give this as an example. So in January of 2020, I had an opportunity to go on a business trip in February. So I learned about it in January, had the opportunity to go on a business trip to California, San Diego in February of 2020. And we all know what happened in March of 2020. And we have sinking funds for travel. We had just drained our sinking fund in November for travel, had not planned any travel until summer of 2020. But this opportunity to go to San Diego arose. And so we decided to go ahead and go on a trip as a family to Disney, which we had never done before. It was also going to be the year that Alexis should have gone away to college, but, you know, that didn't happen because of the pandemic. Well, in making that decision, we did not have the cash on hand for the trip, but we decided this is how much we're going to spend on the trip. Between now and then, we could come up with half of it. And then we decided, okay, and the rest was going to go on credit cards. And we also decided this is how we're going to pay those credit cards off over the course of the next three months. We didn't even try to aggressive, like, super aggressively do it. We spread it out over three months. And we went on that trip. And lo and behold, the pandemic happened. And it was three years before we took another family vacation. And so for me, the decision to use my credit cards to go on a vacation was something that I did intentionally. I understood how I was going to pay it back. And I decided that it was worth it to me to pay X amount in interest in order to be able to have that family vacation now. And that's something that we may be told that we're not allowed to do. And here's the thing. I'm here to tell you that you get to decide how your money is best spent. And if you decide that some of your money is best spent on interest because you value something enough to pay that interest so that you can have it immediately, then that is a decision that you get to make. I think that is a great example, actually. And I will think twice in the future before calling something bad debt. I do worry about the fact that when we look at the interest on credit cards in this country, we are not in a good place. We are on a path where the interest is steadily climbing and savings are steadily being evaporated. And so when we use those credit cards without thinking about it in order to fund a lifestyle where we are consistently spending more than we make, I do think those are bad decisions. And I agree. It's certainly not going to benefit them in the long run. Right. But the issue I have to always say is never the credit card or the interest. It's the spending habits. It's a spending problem and it's an earning problem. And it's good to work at that problem from both sides. But when we just blame the debt, then the debt's the problem. 
right? They can look at the debt and, oh, credit card, it's your fault. Bank, it's your fault. But in reality, it's inside, right? It's how we are structuring our lives, how we are spending, how we're making financial decisions that's causing this result. And that's why I put the focus back on, let's talk about the life that you're trying to create. And also specifically connecting ourselves to our future selves. Because as humans, we're not naturally good at making decisions now that we won't benefit from for 20 or 30 years. So we have to practice that. How do you practice that? And then I want to come back to the concept and the myth of building wealth while you have debt. Mm -hmm. So two things. One thing that I do is I have, which I teach in the book, this idea of the 100-year-old self right, where you walk through what you want your life to look like really decade by decade and start connecting with your future self in that way. And you don't have to do it every single month, but if you do it quarterly, twice a year, then you just get used to starting to think about, hey, some of my money, I want this future life. This is important to me. And the minute you start thinking, this is important to me, having This kind of lifestyle, when I'm ready to stop working, is important to me. That is what fuels our intrinsic motivation, so that internal motivation, which is the most powerful motivation there is, our own desire to have specific things. The second thing is the minimum investing rate. So understanding that there is a specific number that you need to invest every single month in order to hit your target nest egg by your target date. So you can have your ideal lifestyle in retirement. If you're hitting that number, then you're gold because you can grow a nest egg that can service all of your expenses, including, let's say, if you happen to keep a mortgage into retirement. It's possible to do that. So I give this one place to fixate on, right, to make sure that you're building wealth at the correct speed, it's your minimum investing rate. And if you're hitting that, then you're good. Your minimum investing rate is based on your retirement goals. I know there are people out there thinking, just give me a number, Scarlett. Tell me what that minimum investing rate is. And for every person, it's going to be different because every person has a different vision of what their best life looks like. So people that I work with inside of my programs, some of them want a homestead. They want to live off the grid. Some of them are from other countries and they live here in the U.S., but they want to have multiple properties where their family lives so that when they go back to visit their family, they'll stay in their own homes that they own. And those are two very different life visions. We even also have someone that wants to do a SpaceX mission. And she's in her 50s and she's now decided that she wanted this. So now she's working on figuring out how can she save up the hundreds of thousands of dollars extra so that she can go to space, which is one of her big life dreams. So again, very different visions. So we're talking very different dollar amounts. What a bucket list item. That's amazing. Not on mine. I think I would be terrified. (laughs) Same. I'm afraid of heights. I am not going there. (laughs) The earth needs to be ending. (laughs) For me to do that. (laughs) I know that you advocate for people to manage their money through a one-year spending plan rather than a weekly or monthly budget. Can you walk us through what your plan is, how it works, and also the concept of sinking funds? Because it's not a term that we use on this show very often, and I think some people won't be familiar. So a one-year spending plan lays out your budget for the whole year 
on a single spreadsheet at a glance. So you can see everything from January to December. It's truly just 12 columns. January through December, and then as many rows as you need to accommodate all of the expenses in your particular life. And the reason why I like the one-year spending plan is because, number one, so many of our goals take multiple months to hit, so they keep catching us off guard even when they're the same thing every single year. Hello, holiday spending. Right. Or insurance premiums that hit quarterly. Insurance premiums, right. Or semi-annually. So we pay our insurance every six months. Or your registration, that's once every two years. So with the one-year spending plan, you lay all of that out. It's really anticipating what you expect to be doing this year. Maybe you're taking that Bahama cruise in May and you know that it's going to be $4,000. That's where you start using your sinking fund. So you set up a savings account for your specifically earmarked for that cruise so that when the time comes for you to pay for the cruise, the cash is already there. And we do this automatically so that the money actually ends up in that account. And my listeners know that's how I funded my trip for my 50th birthday, where we took everybody to Hawaii. So it definitely works. And you get the pleasure of being on that vacation without having to worry that there will be bills when you come back. Scarlett, you are so smart. I have enjoyed this so much. Last question for you. We are living, as I said, through these very uncertain economic times. Inflation, higher interest rates, bank failures. How do we prevent our dreams from getting caught up in some sort of a catastrophic situation that we have no control over? Well, it's important to recognize that we don't have control of the economy, right, of what's going to happen to the banking systems. But what we do have control over is our own ability to, A, earn money, and two, make the best financial decisions that we can with that money. And that's all we can really do. And accepting that all we can do is our best and the things that we have control over is one of the best things that we can do because otherwise we're going to ruminate, we're going to stress, and we're never going to be able to feel safe because we're relying on outside things that we can't control as the metric of how safe we are. So at the end of the day, all we can do is make sure that we're growing our income, that we keep honing our skills so that we can make money. And I recommend being able to make money both within your own as a traditional employee, but also if you need to, making money outside of a traditional employer relationship, because that will maximize your odds of being able to retain your income. And just trusting in yourself that no matter what, you have what it takes to Handle whatever life throws at you, right? You're capable. You've accomplished already so much in your life. And so whatever the world has in store, you still have the ability to thrive. Scarlett Cochran, the book is It's Not About the Money. Thank you for being here. I hope you'll come back. Thank you for having me. It's such a great conversation. Before we dive into our mailbag, a reminder that Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members take control of their money using a variety of financial tools and resources. BCU's passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom by providing caring support and services that create the value that you deserve. Learn more at bcu.org. 
Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Catherine, I got a girl crush, I gotta say. <laughs> Scarlett was just so, I mean, really smart. In college, I always went for the smart guys. There, there were not a lot of dumb ones. But I feel like she just knows what is important. She has, I mean, maybe that comes from being a teenage mom. Maybe it comes from spending time in the military. She just has her values in the right place. And it just radiated, I think, in everything that she said. We're going to have to get her back soon. Yeah, I would love that. And I was thinking that as she was talking, my dad is a Marine. He's a Vietnam vet. And he has always had such a keen sense of what is important. And there is something about military service that I think distills for people what are the most important things, what is going to bring fulfillment, what is going to be the most important thing I need to focus on right now. And I feel like we heard the same from Senator Tammy Duckworth when we had her on last year. We did, and it's one of the reasons for those people who have been in our Finance Fix universe. The very first coach that I hired for Finance Fix was Valerie Richards. And I met Val when I was doing an ebook on finance for military families. And she went on to get her coaching certification from the AFCPE, her financial coaching certification. And she's that person. You know, she has spent her life in this family devoted to military service. They move around the country every couple of years. She's lovely and she's the face that I want to put forward because she embodies that sense of as long as you have priorities, you will be able to get it done and live happily. Yes, it's so important with everything that you're doing. You know, we talk about this with retirement planning, knowing what your priorities are, knowing where you want to go. That is what influences what you do with your money. Yes, it should. It doesn't always, right. but the message today was it should. I know we've got some questions. Let's go to that. Yeah, our first question today comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, my husband and I are separating. We have no children, and there will be no battles of any kind, legal or financial. However, I'm trying to figure out what to do about my living situation. We have about 500000 in equity in our home with 300000 left on our mortgage, 13 years at 3.25%. I love my home, but it's huge. It's a lot of maintenance, taxes, heating, cooling, etc. for one person. I have the funds to buy him out, mostly, but of course, my payment and expenses would double. So, the logical solution would be to sell it and buy a smaller home. However, the price of homes in our area has skyrocketed, and a modest three-bed, two-bath home in our area will cost about $600,000. I work from home, so I need some space, and I'm not willing to go to an apartment at this stage of my life. I have perfect credit and a six-figure income, but with interest rates around 6.5% and home price insanity, I'm looking at double the payment if I move or double the payment and big upkeep if I stay. I'm really not thinking clearly right now, and I feel like there's an obvious answer I'm missing. What would you do? Well, first of all, I just want you to breathe. I've been where you are. I've been going through a separation. I have been the one to move. So I know what that's like. It is unsettling. And I don't know that there is an obvious choice that you suspect is out there. I would do one of two things. I would either buy him out 
to buy yourself some time, knowing that then you're sitting on this asset that has substantial value that you could sell at any point to get yourself an apartment or a house or another place to live whenever you decide what that looks like for you. The problem with separations and divorces when they happen quickly, unlike mine, which took four years, and that is a story for another time, but the problem when they happen quickly is that they force us to make these decisions that we're just not ready to make. And it sounds to me like you've got the financial flexibility to slow down the clock a little bit and to push your decisions down the road. The other thing that I might do, though, is sell and just say, I'm going to rent for a year. I know you don't want to go into an apartment at this time in your life, but in my area, there were houses for rent. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go into a communal living situation. And I'm struck by the fact that you work from home and that you don't have kids in a school system. So you probably have a decent amount of flexibility to stretch your residential area a little bit. I mean, there may be other factors in your life that I am unaware of that prevent you from leaving this area. And I don't want to see you lose your social network or your friends at this point because of distance, because that would be awful and you need them right now. But I might look at selling, renting, and thinking of that rental as a temporary situation. You may find you actually like living someplace that's a little simpler and a little smaller. I mean, small seems to be something that you're definitely open to, but simpler may be better for you, not having to worry about things like lawn care and snow removal and whether the gutters are clogged. So I would do one of two things. I don't think there's an obvious answer that you're missing. I think either of them would probably be fine. And I also think that once you just decide what you're going to do, you're going to feel better. Yeah. I love that advice, Jean. I was just helping a friend of mine in Birmingham, Alabama with some house hunting. And by that, I mean scrolling Zillow, which like sucks up so much time. But we noticed that there was sometimes a $400,000 difference in a span of two, three miles, which is crazy. Yeah, it's incredible. And often those differences are because of the schools, right? If you're in one school district and you just get outside into a different school district, you can see prices come down, come down substantially. But I get though not wanting to live in an apartment. I moved from a suburb, from a house into the apartment that we're living in now. It's very different. And I would often days give pretty much anything to have a back door that I could open to let the dog out rather than having to get out of my apartment, (laughs) put on, you know, clothing and ride down the elevator to take the dog outside to the street. So I understand the difference, but I don't think you have to do it all immediately. Great point. 
Thank you so much, Jean. My pleasure. In today's Thrive, let's talk about how to travel for less money. Warmer weather, yep, it's on the way. And if you're anything like me, that means you are probably coming down with the travel bug. But if you're holding yourself back from booking a trip because of your budget, you should know traveling doesn't have to be that expensive. We looked into it at Her Money and we found many different ways you could see the world for cheap or even for no money at all. One way is a house swap where you stay at someone's home for free in exchange for letting them stay in your home. It's just like in that movie, The Holiday, which if you haven't seen, you should see. You can coordinate a swap through mutual friends or social media to maximize savings, but there are also secure platforms like homeexchange.com and lovehomeswap.com that connect people for a membership fee. Another option, house sit. In exchange for free lodging, you're responsible for taking care of pets, watering plants, and generally keeping an eye out around the house. Again, you can arrange something informal for free, or you can use a trusted website like trustedhousesitters.com for extra safety measures. Volunteer organizations are also great places to look for travel opportunities. If you sign up for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms, otherwise known as a woof, you can stay at a farm across the world for free by working for about half of each day that you stay. Hosts also provide meals or a kitchen stocked with groceries so you can cook for yourself. Last but not least, look into travel rewards. If you stick to a single airline, you can eventually redeem miles for a free flight. Hotel chains also have loyalty programs so you can rack up points for your stays and travel credit cards can give you bonus points and miles for hitting their spending minimums. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Scarlett Cochran for showing us how we can use our money to enjoy ourselves and still build wealth for tomorrow. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.